is perhaps one of the most remarkable features of the Hajj, that the pilgrim is not asked to solely think or meditate upon certain people and events, but to put themselves in the shoes of another, to bring body into consciousness by physically enacting a movement made by another individual many hundreds of years before. This is perhaps most poignantly and rigorously present in the Sa'i, or the enactment of Hajar salam's search for water for her infant son Ismail after she and Abraham, upon them be peace, obey the command of God for her and the young child to remain in the empty desert. Back and forth Hajar ran between the two hills of Safa and Marwa, seeking anyone or anything to alleviate the thirst of her infant son. Not once, not twice, but seven times she ran until a wellspring of water appeared under the child's feet. Suddenly, out of nowhere in the desert, fresh water began to flow, and the mother's prayer and longing were quenched by divine mercy. In the Hajj ritual, millions of pilgrims return to the site of this incredible event and walk and run in Hajar's steps again, remembering her single-minded seeking and attempt to place their body, mind, and spirit in her movement, her concern, and in her unyielding trust in God's power and mercy, the power to command intervention and allow a spring to pour forth from the most barren of deserts. Even centuries later, can a pilgrim performing the Sa'i help but ask, can such a wellspring form in the desert of my heart? Here to help me explore how time and space begin to blur in these rituals as past and present intertwine are three Hajjah's women pilgrims, Dr. Hadia Mubarak, Hamida Mu'allam, and Jarmana Kuric. Hadia Mubarak is an assistant professor of religion at Queen's University of Charlotte, specializing in Quranic studies. Hamida Mu'allam is a Londoner and graduate from SOAS, currently residing in Germany. Germana Kuric lives in Sarajevo, Bosnia, and works as a freelance researcher, consultant, translator, and interpreter. Thank you both for coming on to talk about your experience of the Sa'i. But before that, I'd like to ask Hadia to give us some context of this ritual. So Hadia, can you tell us a little bit about the historical context surrounding this ritual in the Hajj and how it's been understood in the Islamic tradition? Thank you so much for the opportunity to to talk about this really beautiful narrative we have in the Muslim tradition that I would say, you know, this narrative is not only relevant to Muslims, it's really relevant to people of all Abrahamic faiths. And the reason it's relevant is because the Muslim tradition in many ways provides that sequel to the Bible as to, you know, what happens to, um, you know, I'll, 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 I'll say her name in Arabic and in English, you know, um, Hagar or Hajar, as we say in Arabic, you know, what happens to Hajar, to Hagar, when her and her son, uh, Ismail, Ishmael, are, are exiled, are abandoned in the wilderness, according to Genesis 21, right? Like, what happens after that? Like, is that the end? Because we know, actually, according to the Bible, that Ismail is promised, um, that God promises Hajar when she's pregnant with Ismail, that he will make him into a great nation just like he promised uh, Ibrahim, his father, Abraham. And so the question becomes, well, well, what happens? Like, that's the last we hear of them. And in many ways, the Muslim tradition, specifically through the prophetic um, tradition we have, through the hadith, gives us that sequel. And in many ways, it also provides a different lens through which we can understand the story of alleged abandonment or exile as it's commonly understood in the biblical tradition. We see it through a new lens. And it also... I, I would argue is almost a radical rereading of what we what, how we see this woman, specifically Hajar and the way she's made out to be in the tradition. So, you know, I mean, with your indulgence, I'll just kind of start out with a couple of things that I think is are, are you know, a couple of things that are, I believe are relevant. So 
You know, one thing if we notice carefully in um in the Bible, so before the story of the exile, when it comes to the story of of Hajar first being pregnant with Ismail, this is in Genesis 16. So it's like a few chapters before the story of the exile. And if we if we pay attention to textual details, we find that there's this theme of water that accompanies Hajar Hagar throughout the biblical text. So in Genesis 16, she's one of the few women, first of all, in the Bible to whom an angel directly speaks. You know, and interestingly, there are actually many parallels to the way the angel appears to Hagar in, in the Old Testament and then the way the angel appears to Mary in the New Testament, um, coming to them, consoling them and telling them you're pregnant and you will have a child and this is what you will name the child. And in fact, I don't think there are any other female figures besides Hagar and Mary that we see this. We see an angel coming to uh, kind of in, in many, you know, pronouncing that they're, they are pregnant with a child and telling them what to name this child. Um, interestingly, in the Bible, Ishmael is, is, is the one whom God hears, right? That is actually the meaning of that name. And if we think about it in Arabic, Ismail, there's a linguistic connection between the name and Samia, you know, and so Ishmael is the one whom God God has has heard, which means God God has heard in 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 um, I believe in Hebrew. So I just wanted to mention a couple of things about the story from the Christian slash Jewish tradition that I think can help us better understand why the Muslim tradition provides a rereading of of the story. And one of which is, um, so I, I mentioned Genesis 16. I mentioned that the, um, the angel comes to her. Also, when the angel comes to her, it's described that the angel found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. So we see this theme of water. And I want us to think about the symbolism of that water in both the Christian, in, in, in both the, the, the biblical text and the, and the Muslim tradition, the hadith. What is that theme or sim symbolism of water for Hajar and in, in her life? And then... Um, Really, uh, in Genesis 21, you know, which is a story of when Ibrahim alayhi uh, Abraham takes uh, Hagar and her son Ishmael, their son, right, and leaves them in the wilderness. So for those of you who are familiar with the Christian tradition, um, and I should say for those of you who are familiar with the Jewish and Christian tradition in the, in the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament, you know, we see this. Hagar being this figure who um, doesn't question Abraham, you know, like, why are you leaving us out here? In fact, there's no dialogue captured between husband and, and wife, right? It's really interesting. There's no, there's no dialogue. Um, but what we do know is that she appears to be very helpless. She cannot stand to look in the face of her child, whom she assumes will die of thirst. And so she sits at a distance away from him and she weeps, according to Genesis 21, 17, Right. And it's really interesting because she doesn't, as the as a mother who believes her child's about to die out of thirst, doesn't really appear to take the means to try to seek that water for her child, right? And when we compare this to um, the hadith, right, this is an entire story of abandonment, of exile, is seen from a new prism. And it's seen from the prism of divine intervention. And when we look at trial and tribulation through this prism of divine intervention, in fact, that entire experience of tribulation transforms into one of blessing and bounty. We begin to realize, and especially as Islamic theology teaches us, that oftentimes what appears to us as difficulty and as hardship in fact, is sowing the seeds for a new opening, a new beginning. And in fact, we see this in this very story of Hajar and her son uh, Ismail Ishmael being left in this desert, in this uninhabited desert with no people, no water, no sustenance whatsoever. We, we, we begin to see through the, uh, you know, I guess the blessing of hindsight that, you know, we, we as humans don't usually have, right? That this, in fact, was planting the seeds for a new civilization. That this, in fact, the seeming seeming um, difficulty, hardship, trial was creating a, a new chapter, a new blessing in Hajar and her son's life. 
So while certain threads remain the same between the biblical and Islamic narratives, the Muslim narrative on Hajar mostly derived from prophetic traditions transforms this seemingly helpless and meek female figure into a force of wonder and a matriarch of a new civilization. You know, Mecca was founded by a woman. This day, which we, this city, which today we can say, you know, is unfortunately a very uh, patriarchal place in general, right? Because of certain laws, and they're and they're very much embedded in 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 state policy. It has nothing to do with Islam whatsoever. But that this is a, a city where today, because of you know um, the modern nation state and the and the and the and the policies it's imposed, is a, is quite a patriarchal place to be. Yeah, ironically, it was founded by a woman, and and so Hajar is the matriarch of the holiest city in Islam, right? There was this woman who was seen as sort of a very marginalized, oppressed figure in in both Muslim and 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 and, and um, you know in the Abrahamic history. I think you had brought up the idea of um, you know the radical rereading, not just of Hajar as a, as a matriarch, but of Hajar as given a voice. Somehow, you know, Hajar has given this this voice, and that that voice echoes through through the centuries. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about her voice in in the Quranic narrative as well. Yeah, that's actually an, an amazing point. I mean, thanks for bringing that up. So, you know, one of the if we kind of do this kind of comparative analysis between the hadith we have for the Prophet, and there are two two narrations of this hadith in Sahih al Bukhari, and we compare this to uh, the story in Genesis twenty one. And we do kind of a close textual analysis. There are a few key differences that that emerge, one of which is we do see a dialogue between husband and wife. And in fact, we see a wife who is persistent and knows how to break her husband's silence, right? And Ibrahim, you know, Abraham, he's, he's silent for a reason because, you know, scholars say that when you are asked to do something that is very difficult, but you're doing it because you know, because Allah has asked you to do this, or you know, of course, of, of course, in, in this case, you know, this is uh, a prophet who's receiving d- divine inspiration, right? So, of course, it's not something that's really comparable to to our situation. But yeah, in some ways, you know, we are also sometimes doing certain things for the sake of Allah because we know through you know the the obviously through the Islamic tradition that this is something that God wants us to do. And so there are some parallels, but nonetheless, you know, he, he's, he's silently walking away and he's sort of avoiding, if you will, that moment of confrontation of like, how does he explain to his wife that he's leaving her in this uninhabited, deserted place? And so in both narrations we have in, in, in Sahih al-Bukhari, we see this woman who is very persistent and very wise and knows what to say to elicit a response from her husband, right? So in one of the narrations uh, we have from Ibn Abbas, عنه, he says, <clears throat> So Um Ismail follows him. She begins to walk behind him. And then until they reach Kada, and then she calls him from behind and she says, Ila man tatrukuna, To whom are you leaving us? And then he says to Allah, right? And that's just so deep, so deep. Because she knows Allah's there. She knows he's there. And but it was just the obvious that was unstated. And he says to Allah. And then she responds and she says, Billah, that I am pleased with Allah. I, I have complete contentment with God. And it's it just you see this woman of faith throughout this uh prophetic tradition we have of the story of what what transpires, right, between husband and wife when this you know, when this abandonment happens, right? And I, I have trouble calling it abandonment because that's the way it's commonly understood, you know, through the Judaic Christian lens. But yet, you know, obviously we, we uh, in the Muslim tradition, it's it's not really a story of abandonment as much as it's something that God is testing Ibrahim with the way he tested him with the story of the sacrifice. And in a different narration that's also in Sahih al-Bukhari, she also, you know, is persistent, right? So she follows him, she calls after him, and she says, Ya Ibrahim, Aina Tadhabu, what Tatrukuna Bihadi, Yadal Wadi, Aladi Laysa Fihi Insun, Wada Shay, 
where are you going and leaving us in this valley in which there there is no instant there's no like company right no company and there's nothing so again we see her as not this like meek helpless person but someone who's asking the right questions and knowing how to elicit a response and then فقالت له ذلك مرارا this is bitter this is bitter and 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 he he would not turn to look at her and again the scholars say because seeing her might have made him break down emotionally not really be able to continue with this task that god has commanded him to do and then so he's not responding at this in this narration he's not turning towards her and then she asks him another question and she says allahu alladhi amaraka bihadha did god command you to do this and there's so much wisdom in this just this one question right because first you can say she's sort of complaining right is she just saying like where do you think you're going this place is not a good place to leave us and this is bitter right and so we almost see a very kind of human reaction from a wife which we know i think a lot of us would say a lot more than this right we would say so much more than this like you can just imagine the kind of things that we uh you know that, that some of us would would be saying um and then when he's not responding you know she she knows her husband and she knows that he would not abandon her in this way so she asks him did god command you to do is it allah that who commanded you to do this and then he responds with this one word nam yes and then her response here in this narration is idhan la yudayyuna allah or idhan la yudayyuna there then if that is the case god will not forsake us and she returns right and so it's at this moment after she knew what to ask she was able to elicit a response from her husband sort of break his silence that we see her come back with this full resolution and faith to do everything in her power to save her 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 child to save her child and herself right but she's mainly interested as a mother in saving her child and we see this maternal courage and maternal instinct so rather than sit away from him and weep as she does in Genesis 21 this is where the muslim tradition really through these details transforms the story transforms the way we understand the way haja responds to this trial and tribulation she responds with faith she responds with courage she responds with this resolution of i will do everything within my power i am not helpless i have agency and she begins to run she begins to run back and forth between these hills and you can imagine mecca is a hot hot place right we've many of us have had alhamdulillah the blessing to to go there and for those of you who have it i ask god to grant you every one of you listening to this podcast a opportunity to travel to the city but it's a hot place especially when you're outdoors right and we have to re- remember there was no air conditioning there was no ceiling above her there was no marble flooring beneath her feet she was on hot desert sand right running back and forth hoping that maybe she could see someone from above the hills who could help her and then you know i mean if, uh, as you all know of course it is at that moment that she returns and finds this miraculous spring of water right at the feet of her son and there's so much so much wisdom there i just want to say one thing that with genesis 21 there's the theme of water actually is there right because um so so when god opened her eyes in verse 19 chapter 21 it says then god opened her eyes and she saw a well of water she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink even though the jewish christian tradition does not have the story of the miracle of zamzam yeah if you read chapter uh, 21 verse 19 it is very clear that there is a miracle of water that appears yet again for hajar alayhisalam as there was in chapter 16 when this angel finds her by a well of water and we need to think about the symbolism of this water right of 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 what it means of of this idea that god always provides what we need to quench our own physical our own you know thirst like in in the literal sense and to quench our thirst in other ways right that god the god always is the one who provides mm. hadia this context that you've created for us is 
incredibly powerful and helpful and helps us set the stage to understand with, I think, great depth and clarity about this Sa'i ritual. Can you talk to us a little bit about the concept of Sa'i, what this word and action refers to in the Hajj ritual? Yeah, so, you know, this is an important question. And, and you know, the, the Sa'i in terms of the actual rich Hajj ritual, right? And, and, and one thing I will say is that, you know, this is not just a story from the past, right, that we sort of read for, you know, as, as hist- history, if you will. There is a continuous reenacting of this woman's maternal courage that every male and female has to perform in order for their hajj or even umrah, the, even the minor pilgrimage to be accepted. So whether you're traveling to do the minor pilgrimage, the, the umrah, or you're traveling to perform the major pilgrimage, the hajj, which Muslims are commanded to do at least once in their lifetime, uh, this this really momentous uh transforming right life transforming experience of the hajj in which one is seeking allah one is seeking god and in order for this hajj to be complete one has to retrace the footsteps of this woman that is she's not forgotten her her maternal courage is not just a line a sentence in history it is in our living in our living memory in our living consciousness as a people that we need to remember what she went through and what she did and in many ways it's a celebration of really of of her uh faith it's a celebration of her courage it's a celebration of motherhood i would even argue because really um you know i mean there's so much that one we can say about motherhood and and the prophet peace be upon him is uh uh honors mothers so much in his traditions, you know, this idea that ummak thumma ummak thumma ummak, when the companion comes to him and tells him who is most worthy of my good companionship. And three times he responds, your mother, your mother, your mother, because there are things your mother has done for you that you were too young to even remember, that your consciousness was not even developed to a point that you can recall. And so the Quran reminds us of this as well, right? His mother carried him. Um, <clears throat> I, I believe this is the ayah uh, that his mother, you know, uh, bore him and, and, and carried him. And, and uh, throughout the Quran and even the prophetic traditions, there are there is so much emphasis on honoring mothers, and and it's because of the self selflessness, this altruism that mothers inherently have that God sort of instills within them right that they will do anything they will sacrifice anything for their children and we see this in the story of Hajar um, but you also asked me about sort of the etymology of this word and and what does this word mean and I think it's so powerful that this ritual of running between these hills is is called Sa'i this idea of seeking and we know that Hajar uh, Hagar was seeking water. She was seeking, uh, you know, sustenance. Um, and when we are performing this, right, what are we seeking, right? And she was seeking water to quench her thirst, uh, to quench the, her child's thirst. And when we are running between these hills or walking between these hills today, what are we seeking, right? And the Quran reminds us that uh, we are all seeking different things, right? That uh, if I can, if I can uh, pull up the ayah, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, inna sa'yakum lashatta, you know, that your your efforts are dispersed, that everyone is seeking something different, right? And the question becomes, when we are performing this pilgrimage, what are we seeking? And if we are seeking Allah, if that is what we are seeking, we will find that zamzam like she found. We will find that zamzam, that water that will quench our spiritual thirst. And it might not be water in a literal sense or zamzam in a literal sense. But like as she was running back and forth, she finds this miracle of zamzam. While we are running back and forth seeking Allah, you know, as sa'i in Allah, that we are running to Allah, seeking Allah. We will also find through that sigh, through that running, we will find that which will quench our spiritual thirst. 
uh, inshallah. I mean, Hadia, I, I often ponder about the fact that, you know, all of this could have been very cogitative. It could have been very mental, very reflective. We could have just been asked to reflect upon, to sit quietly and think about uh, Hajar running between these mountains. But I, I really... It's a thing of astonishment that we are tasked with physically reenacting parts of Hajar and Abraham and Ismail's story. So why are we asked? You've touched on it, but can you explain a little more about why are we asked to walk her walk or run her run? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess it might be appropriate to share at this point, you know, my own experience. Uh, I, I was had the opportunity and blessing to perform Hajj one time. It was in the summer of 2019, August 2019, right before the pandemic hit. And it's it's very difficult to describe in words the emotions uh, and, and the feelings you experience. But there was one thing I recall that I never experienced except there at Hajj, uh, which is you sort of begin to perceive the reality of your soul in a way that we don't really perceive, right? And it almost reminds me of what it would be like to be in the grave because we know that uh, being in the grave is just another dimension of reality that the soul continues to experience things in the grave and continues to experience time, the, 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 um, continues to experience the passing of time, although the way the soul experiences that passing of time is very relative to, um, to the soul itself and what that, what that soul is like, what the, you know, whether or not it was a righteous soul or an evil soul. Um, and, and it, I, there was this sort of epiphany, I guess I had when I was in Mina and it's very in specific, you know, Mina, Mina, if you've been to Mina, you're in this tent, you're packed with people side by side. Um, it's almost like you, at least the tents we were in, you can't even turn without hitting the person next to you. You know, it's that, and, and, and you realize at that moment, that, you know, Hajj sort of strips you down to your bare basics, that you are really nothing but the soul, that you are not your accomplishments. It's not, you, you know, you're not defined by your career, by your education, by your wealth, by your family, that there is nothing that marks you or identifies you in that space and time except for your ruh. You really feel your ruh in a way at least for me, that I never experienced before. And it it reminded me of Hajar in several ways, that experience, because I, I, I am a mother and I was a mother at the time that I traveled. And I was so anxious about leaving behind my children and what that meant and, 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 and coming to terms with the reality that death could be a possibility that death could be imminent uh, because one one is always you know when you perform the Hajj you know you're, there's no guarantee obviously of your return and there's no guarantee at any time of our lives really that we will return to our homes and um, you know this is something that is should be really as Muslims at the forefront of our consciousness the reality of our ultimate meeting with God but in Hajj is sort of for me at least took this really pronounced feeling and it weighed really heavily on my heart because of the fact that I knew I was leaving behind two children, right? And through this sort of experience I had, I, I understood that we were all asked to be like Hajar. You know, Hajar had this reliance and tawakkul that is just surreal, you know, this 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 tawakkul she had, even la Allah, that therefore God will not forsake us. And while I was sort of struggling personally with that fear and that anxiety and those worries, it just hit me and dawned upon me that I was being asked to have that same level of faith and reliance and tawakkul on Allah, that Allah will take care of my children, Allah will take care of me, that um, through my prayers, you know, God will reunite me with my children, everything will be okay, that my hajj will be, you know, hopefully... Uh, not only will I be able to perform and complete this hajj, but that, you know, by God's grace and mercy, it will be accepted. And I just, when I remembered Hajar and I remembered her story through that reenactment and through just bringing her story to mind, 
it brought me so much comfort and consolation. You know, they can't even describe. I just wanted to say something about um, this word sai also, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way it appears in the Quran. And one of my favorite verses in Surah Al-Najm um, appears, Surah Al-Najm is chapter 53, uh, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us uh, in this chapter, um, that man shall have nothing except, um, you know, well, I, I think a good translation maybe what uh, Abdul Halim translates, that man will only have what he has worked towards or what he has strived for. And then it continues and, say, and says, That everyone striving will come to light, that everyone striving will be seen, right? And if we connect this ayah to, you know, this word sa'i, right, that we perform during the pilgrimage, that we are... Performing this physical sa'i, right, between these two hills, Safa, Safa and Marwa. But that sa'i is metaphorical or analogous of the greater sa'i. Like, what are we striving for in our own lives, in our day-to-day sort of interactions? And what also preoccupies our minds? What are we seeking? Because we are all seeking something. And the Qur'an reminds us that we will ultimately have nothing except that which we saw. And that everyone's seeking, everyone's endeavor, everyone's efforts will be seen on the Day of Judgment. And then Allah says in Surah Al-Najm, And then he will be rewarded the in full. That in the end he will be repaid in full. For what? For your sa'i. For what you sought, right? And I think it just, subhanAllah, when I read these ayat, it just really, really hits me, right? Because the, the reality of this world is that every human being is seeking something and we're all seeking different things and Allah reminds us, but we will only have that which we sought. And I think as we perform, you know, and for those who are performing this hajj and and, and walking that sa'i, it's sort of a reminder of like, what are we seeking? Where have we put our efforts in this world? Has Allah been, has God been just one priority among other competing priorities? Or is God the center, center most priority around which everything else revolves, right? And I think it's sort of a reminder for me personally, and hopefully a reminder for others, of how do we make Allah the center of our sa'i, the, the ultimate destination of our sa'i, where, where Allah is not just a competing priority among other priorities, but is really the center most reality of our lives, and that everything else all of our other mini size, if you will, our other sort of strivings are really just rivers or channels leading to Allah. You know, how do we how do we how do we make that reality in our own lives? How do we, you know, and I, I kind of think about that. I think that is really the ultimate side that we're all seeking uh, through that metaphorical side, if you will, or even actually literal side in 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 the in the um you know in 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 in, in uh, the Hajj or Umrah, um, and what's re- what's really interesting is these these verses I just read um, in Surah Al Najm, uh, in chapter fifty three. The ayah that precedes them is reminds us where Ibrahim alladhi wafa, that Ibrahim salam was one who fulfilled his covenant, right? And then the next ayah says um, that no no uh, no soul shall bear the burden of another. And then and it really hit me that like even even in these verses, it's still sort of there's this still still this connection to Ibrahim السلام, and and what he went through, the trials and tribulations that he went through that serve as a reminder, I think, for all people, you know, the trials and tribulations um of this family, of this sort of uh, you know, the 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 ultimate monotheist, right? Ibrahim السلام, uh, Abraham, peace be upon him, is the ultimate monotheist in all three religious traditions uh, in in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so there are so many lessons, I think, to be derived from just reflecting on the experiences of this family, including, you know, his wife, um, both both his wives, Sarah, Hajar, and his son, Ismail. And, and one thing I will note in the Muslim tradition, Hajar was the wife of Ibrahim, salam. She was not merely a concubine um, as she's portrayed in um, other traditions she is in fact a 
a full wife. Hadiyah's description of Hajar Salam's maternal courage and the divine intervention and divine grace uh, directly experienced by pilgrims who enact the Sa'i is an area that our next guest can speak so eloquently about with firsthand knowledge of what the Sa'i feels like and means to pilgrims. Hamida and Jarmana both undertook the Hajj as young women, Hamida as a 15-year-old and Jarmana in her very early 20s. I want to ask them about their Hajj journeys and how they experienced the Sa'i. So my name is Hamida. Um, I'm from the UK, but originally from Somalia. And um, I did the Hajj when I was 15 years old. And what took you as a young 15-year-old, what inspired you to make that journey and how did you experience that journey to get there? Um, so I was really blessed in the sense that it wasn't like an intention of mine to go to Hajj at that age. Um, but I remember that was like, that age was when I kind of had my Islamic awakening. So I, I really started to become interested in Islam and I started to take my prayers seriously and saw it as something which I wanted to do rather than something just my parents taught me when I was young. And so um, I remember just, subhanAllah, it's so beautiful, that age when you have that zeal. And whenever you hear anything, you want to implement it straight away. It's so beautiful when you just like like feel the beauty of Islam for the first time and then you want to just do everything, right? So one of the things that I took upon myself to do was to, it's like the five pillars of Islam, we all have to do them, right? And then I was like to my parents, why are you guys not going to Hajj? I mean, you guys have no, no reason not to. I mean, you have the ability financially to go. You have the time. Why not? And then my parents were like, yeah, why not, actually? We, we didn't really think about it, you know? And so um, my parent, my mom and dad, um, my dad had gone, like, once in his life, but my mom hadn't. So um, my dad obviously had to go with her as her mahram. And then they said to me, oh, why don't you just come with us then? And I was like, okay, great, you know? It was just like that. Like, it wasn't something I intended subhanAllah, Allah, um, Allah facilitated it through my parents. So um, I went to Hajj when I was 15 years old with my parents. And it was, yeah, it was just an amazing, amazing experience. It taught me so much. I think I was so, I was so lucky because I went so early on in my like um, journey becoming more serious about Islam. And it just kind of gave me that, um, that push to be even, to take the deen even more seriously. And um, yeah, and it was it was just an amazing experience. Alhamdulillah. You were probably one of the youngest, in, you know, interviewees for this um, Hajj exp- lived experience. So I think it's a pretty amazing story to think about a, a young fifteen year old in London, um, you know, getting her parents <laughs> to go for Hajj and then getting an invitation to go herself. Yeah. How did you prepare for that journey? And what kind of um did you go with a big group and what was your experience of getting to the actual the haram? So um, the way that we went was actually really interesting because we didn't go with a group. Mm-hmm. So we, um, we, in those days, I think it was easier to kind of avoid going in a group. But I think now you can't, like, it's like you have to go in a group. Um, and so we went, um, before I, we, we went, we booked the flight and everything and we got the visa. And um, before we went, I basically went through all this, like, books and things to, so I can learn all the things that we need to do for the Hajj. And um, my mom was kind of like, you know, you learn the things and tell us what to do. Because <laughs> we didn't go with a group. Because when you go with a group, you kind of have like a sheikh or someone to kind of guide you through it. Um, so we didn't have that. But it was really, it was really good for me because I was like, I took, it was like a big responsibility. Because I was like, okay, we're not going to go with a group. Um, the, you know, my dad had gone to Hajj before, but you still need to kind of like learn all these like fiqhi rulings for, for specific things. And so, um, yeah, it was really interesting to just go on that other journey of like seeking this knowledge that I've never had to like learn before. Like I wasn't, I didn't really know a lot about Islam, even though I grew up in the Muslim family, like in terms of like fiqh and stuff. So it was really good to just learn all those rulings and stuff. And um, yeah, that was basically the preparation that we, and we didn't go with the group. So we, we, we had the most amazing time actually mm-hmm. when we went to Hajj. Maybe I'm going ahead of the... Yeah, we had an amazing time because we kind of 
went with we kind of somehow ended up going with lots of other groups mm -hmm. so we just joined people in different stages so like for example when we were in medina we were with this like egyptian american hajj group like they we were just with them in the hotel and then we went with them on the journey to mecca you know and um we just basically were going with lots of different people and so we met so many amazing people and had these um like connections that we wouldn't have had anywhere else if we'd just gone with like a British Hajj group uh you know so it was it was really amazing can you tell us a little bit about your experience of just being in this gigantic throng multitudes of people what was that like for you especially during and participating in the rituals of the Hajj um I just remember like um there were so many people and there were so many like I I didn't it just made me realize how huge the ummah was. Like, I was just like, the ummah is just... Like, I remember I saw Muslims. I remember there was this Hajj group from Montenegro. Montenegro. And I was like, how did... What? Muslims live there? Like, I didn't even know Muslims were, like, from there. You know, I just... Yeah, I was just like, this is some country in, um, I don't know, southeastern Europe. And like, what, what has that got to do with Islam? But then, then I found that the Muslims lived there. And I, met, and I remember I saw a group of Russian Muslims as well from like Tajikistan and I was like what you know because for me I just thought Muslims are like Pakistanis, Somalis, Arabs you know <laughs> like there's like certain people who I grew up with who are Muslim grew up in Muslim families but I just never saw that there were Muslims from other places you know like even far East Asia like I saw some Chinese Muslim groups as well so I was just thinking when I went there and I saw all those people I was just like it made me so proud to be part of this ummah like I was just like so humbled like Allah chose me, this little 15-year-old girl from London, to come here. And then he, like, showed me this great ummah that I was part of. And I guess I just never knew how, how great the ummah was, except when I saw it with my own eyes, you know, when I went there. So, yeah. What was your experience of doing the sa'i. In this episode, we had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Hadiyah Mubarak, who walked us through the you know, character and uh, history of this ritual, as well as her mm -hmm. personal reflections of being Haji too. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, experience of the Sa'i, of this walk between Safa and Marwa? So uh, the Sa'i, I remember when I was going on it, like when I first saw the distance between Safa and Marwa, I was like, yeah, this is not too <laughs> bad. Like it, it seemed really not so long, just mm -hmm. by when you look at it, right? But when you're on the path, going back and forth, you realize it is a really long path, even though you have air conditioning and it's like really nice and it's, there's a roof over your head, which wasn't the case for, for Hajar, uh, but we were just like, oh, this is great. But then when you do it, you realize how tiring it is, mm -hmm. just that walk and you doing it multiple times over and over. And um, I remember when I was, because I, I knew the story beforehand when I was a kid, I always used to hear that story about um, when Ibrahim salam had to leave his son and his wife basically in the middle of the desert. And just when you're walking there, you just think about her experience. Like everyone always says it, but it's like she had to have that in the baking hot sun, the same experience we had, but in the baking hot sun with a child by herself. You know, and um, we were talking about this just before, but about the aspect of being a mother mm -hmm. as well. Um, Subhanallah, the thing I love about the sto stories of the Quran and the Sunnah is that they apply to you in different ways at different mm -hmm. stages of your life. Mm -hmm. Like you can hear a story about one of the prophets when you're a teenager mm -hmm. and have a completely different reflection than when you're like, you know, an older person or like you're married or whatever it may be. So. Subhanallah, I was just thinking yesterday about the, um, the story of Hajar salam as a mother, just a recent mother who just gave birth two months ago. Mm. Like, hearing your baby cry is, like, difficult mm. for a mother. It's, it's like something inside of you is, like, tugged when you hear your baby cry. Especially if you hear your baby cry and you... But that's the hearing your baby cry in general. So imagine hearing your baby cry and you can't give your baby what it needs at that moment that must be such a painful experience and to also leave your baby alone because when she's doing that walk she was walking away from her baby in the middle of the desert 
anything could happen to the baby. The baby could die of exhaustion and heat. Uh, a wild animal could come and eat it. And she, you know, and she did that walk, you know, hoping for Allah's, um, you know, for Allah to find, to show her a way out of her difficulty. And I was thinking of the times that when we, when we make dua in life, like we make dua for something and we lose hope. Like we may not get the response that we imagined and then we become weary of like asking. And then I was thinking, Hajar uh, didn't get weary of asking because that long walk, she didn't stop because she was like, Allah's going to, Allah's going to find me a way out. Allah's, there is a solution and Allah's going to give it to me. I just have to keep trying. And that walk is like that, inc- that incessance, like I will, ta'ala, overcome this. And that I find so beautiful that she didn't give up, that that seven, seven rounds in the hot baking sun. And then she was like, she didn't know how Allah's going to help her, but she knew that it, that it will come, you know, um, that yaqeen that she had. It's such a beautiful thing to think about because when I think about like how impatient we are and how we expect things in a certain way and if we don't get it, then we become um, ungrateful. And she wasn't ungrateful even in the most difficult circumstances, you know, um, with a crying baby that she can't help, you know. <sighs> SubhanAllah. Just when you think about it as a, a mother or as a parent, it just has a completely different dimension to the story because... It's just, yeah, it just tugs at your heart even more, you know, subhanAllah. Yeah, I think that uh, the scholar we spoke to in this episode described it as, you know, the reenactment of maternal courage. Mm. What does it mean to you that we do this reenactment, that we don't just think about hajar? We don't, we're not asked to go to the hajj and, you know, just quietly contemplate mm. her movement. We're asked actually to reenact it. What does it mean to you that you were asked to physically reenact that movement, that's maternal courage? I think what it means to me is that, first, it's, I think it's, it's an honor, Allah honoring Hajar that, that we follow in her footsteps. That what she did was so beautiful and so beloved to Allah and so courageous that, that till now thousands, millions of people have done the same walk and the same path that she has. And... Also, it's a reminder to just persevere in our hope and our cert- not only hope, but like our certainty that Allah will will come to our aid, even in the most difficult times. Because when you are walking in that path, it's like you don't give up. You just got to keep going seven times. And that seems easy. But when you think about the circumstances that she did it in, it's not easy at all. And I think what we... Um, we don't think about when we think about asking Allah for something is that you don't just ask but there's also sometimes a sacrifice required of you in that asking you, you ask obviously and Allah will give and Allah, the end the you know the, the, the ease is always near but so in the in getting to that ease there is sometimes um, sacrifice required mm-hmm. of you um, you have to show your um, your your sincerity to Allah like you are not just asking him because you just oh this is I'm gonna get it this is what I want it's about I want this so badly and I am completely trusting you Allah I'm completely giving myself to you Allah that is what was required of us and sometimes it's not easy to 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 get to show that like you you can say it but to you have to mean it you know you can it's, it's very easy to say those words but to really show that you are giving yourself to Allah. And that's what Hajar showed in, in that walk, that she was trusting Allah completely, that she had no way of knowing that Allah was going to give her the zamzam, the flowing water, but she knew that the end was going to be um, better. She knew that Allah was going to answer her, her du'as, you know? Yeah. Hamida, thank you. That is just so beautiful. And I think we'll just a treasure of a reflection for everyone who hears this. My name is Germana Kuric. I am from Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, I am 
41, well, going to be 41 this year. <laughs> uh, and I did my Hajj in 2008. And you said you were a young woman at the time, in your early 20s, is that right? That's correct. Okay. Can you tell us about how your Hajj journey began? How did you decide at that young age to take this journey? And what did your journey look like? How did you experience the movement toward Hajj? So it's really interesting to think about this now, because I would maybe change some things or <laughs> do them differently from this perspective, but it is what it is. So alhamdulillah for that. So the understanding which I had around Hajj was that at the moment when you actually um, gain or earn or have enough money, it's an... Um, religious Islamic obligation to go to Hajj. So that was something that like led me uh, to make this decision. Um, so yeah, this is how the decision was basically made. Uh, it was uh, as simple as that, I would say, if this sounds uh, simple, it does to me. I think it was even... Uh, from this perspective now, I didn't like think about everything that this journey uh, involves. I didn't even understand all of it. And um, I'm hopeful, inshallah, I will get to go uh, once again with uh, different um, now, let's say, understanding and more wisdom and inshallah, also hopefully patience. <laughs> um, so the journey... Uh, I decided to go by uh, a bus at that time. There was a possibility from Bosnia to go either by plane or go by bus. So we decided that we will go by bus. Uh, I was the one who was insisting on this uh, because I thought uh, that is going to be more authentic, whatever that means. <laughs> and now, like, obviously we could challenge and question this, but the idea of actually traveling in a, in a caravan, in a convoy of, I think, 15 or 16 buses from Bosnia, um, for me was very challenging. And for my husband at the time, it wasn't very, <laughs> very interesting, but yeah, we went for that because I was the one who thought, this um, insisting on us feeling, you know, this true convoy of people preparing and getting getting to Hajj by bus. So uh, we traveled through Bosnia, Serbia, Bulgaria, uh, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, and uh, to Medina. Medina was our first stop, if I remember, like first stop in uh, Saudi. Arabia, if I remember correctly. Uh, it was a journey that took us six or seven days. Uh, if I remember correctly, we would travel one night and then sleep in a hotel every second night. So we would spend one night in the, on the bus and then one night in a hotel. So we stopped in Istanbul. Mm, Damascus. Amman, but I think also another another place in Turkey, which I now cannot remember. So it was a long journey, uh, definitely, especially for uh, us today, thinking about journeys of this type. Uh, I found it to be very interesting. I we were among younger people in this convoy, which also meant many uh, older people asked us for lots of different. Uh, types of assistance, which in a way also, you know, for me, I kept, you know, thinking and telling myself, uh, you need to be, you know, of service to others. That's part of your Hajj. Patience is also part of your Hajj and like many of these things. So mm -hmm. it was really interesting. Lots of different people traveling together towards these holy, holy places. I, I really enjoyed, enjoyed that part. How was the transformation from 
you know, a traveler to the sacred cities to pilgrim, when you sort of enter that stage in the journey where everyone starts putting on their ihram and getting into this, um, you know, becoming this muhrim, becoming a pilgrim, really. How was that transition for you? How did you experience that? And, and the bus, how, where does that even take place? Well, if I remember correctly, because we first arrived to Medina, mm -hmm. then when we were uh, continuing our journey from Medina to Mecca, then we put our ihrams in Medina. And then we went directly to uh, Mikat before 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 Mecca. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, honestly, I think that like I started putting myself in this mindset from the very beginning. Um, especially as I said, for me, I uh, I was with a lot with a, with a group of older people who needed lots of assistance, and they were very slow. And so my patients really needed to be there from the from the very first day. And for me to have this, I kept reminding myself that I am going on a sacred journey, that this is a pilgrimage, and pilgrimage also involves, you know, all sorts of things like, like these. So for me, this really helped, and this whole preparation... Um, this time for it took me at least 10 days to get to Mecca so this whole time was a, was a great for me to, to 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 experience this you know preparation and understand what this all entails because this is also physically challenging you know it's not a lot but it's not super easy so some of that you know it's it's good to have some, some of that preparation so for me that was there on, mm -hmm. on the bus so you experienced this sort of slow movement toward Mecca. And then it feels like from the lived experiences that we're collecting in this podcast, and from what we know of the Hajj, that the Hajj itself involves all kinds of other movement now that you have to engage in. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Sa'i, especially that form of movement? And what what was the experience of, of walking between Safa and Marwa and completing this, this ritual? Uh, for me, this particular uh, part of, of uh, the overall Hajj ritual is really uh, important. And for me, in my life, it was also uh, in a way transformative because it helped me find a place for myself as a woman in Hajj. And maybe currently, uh, in terms of my self-understanding uh, uh, and my development as a Muslim woman that is not that important now but it, there, there was a time in my life when it was very important for me to have female role models I mean it still is obviously of course uh, but there was a time when it was really important for me to, to have that and that was crucial for me and my understanding of, of myself as a Muslim woman so um, Sai definitely uh, well is, is is crucial in this in this whole thing as I said because it's um it's uh, a fard, it's an obligation within Hajj, and uh, it's a ritual that was performed by a woman. So without this particular ritual, there is no Hajj. And this was performed uh, by a woman, or we repeat something that uh, a woman a woman uh, did. Uh, so, um, so, and it's not just any woman, it's Hajar, and it's, a, it's an African woman. It's a woman who was underprivileged. It's a woman who trusted God more than anyone and who relied on God heavily, relied on God where there is no one else to rely on. And uh, she was rewarded for that. So for me, that, that story, uh, her story and her um, being worried and being hopeful and being resilient and being patient and trying to find uh, solace and um, believing God will send a rescue for her was re is really important. So I spent a lot of time reading about that before me doing that. And I was really trying to um, imagine how that was, how this looked like, you know, a woman alone in desert with a child, uh, so I really tried to reenact that during my Sai. So uh, I was trying, you know, to close my eyes, to like go back to that time, to try and like really feel how this should have felt. 
and I had um, um, there was this you know I read these books that I suppose people shared with you also during these stories everyone reads things and get tries to, to, to somehow prepare themselves and in some of these books it said that um, uh, during a part of Sai a men uh, men should run a little bit more or like have some faster pace and women shouldn't be running like you know the books some some of these books that i read they say this but i ignored that and i i ran you know because i somehow felt this is this has to be how it looked like like you know and there was there was a older hadji from uh, from bosnia with me in the group and he didn't like the fact i was running and he said to me, you shouldn't be running here. You know, women don't run here. The, the books say women don't run here. And I, I was I was starting to be a little bit frustrated, but I was reminding myself not not, not to be frustrated. And I asked him, okay, Haji, uh, why, why not? Who ran here? You know, and he said to me, Ibrahim ran here. And I was like, no, it wasn't Ibrahim. No. Uh, so it wasn't Abraham. It was Hajar. So, yeah. So I really found this to be beautiful. Uh, also, it was surprising for me. I thought these were bigger hills and this is a bigger distance. But it's, I mean, it does, in the end, seven times, it's not little. I mean, it's not small number. So it it is, it's not as easy, you know, as it maybe you know, seems now when I talk about this, but it's uh, smaller than I envisage it to be, you know, like I thought these were bigger, bigger hills and like, you know, the distance is, is, is longer. What does it mean to you that we are asked to not, you know, attend Hajj and sit quietly and contemplate this maternal journey that she did, this maternal act of as our scholar in this episode put it, this act of maternal courage. We're not asked to just quietly contemplate it. We're asked to physically reenact it. What does it mean to you as, as a hajja and now even with the experience of time, what does it mean to you that we're asked to reenact it and not just think about it? Well, I, I think it's amazing. You know, I think that like the embodiment of that is is crucial and it's extremely important. Uh, you know, it's one thing as we as we say in activism to talk the talk. It's another one to walk the walk. You know, so like really uh, following her footsteps and following the footsteps of Ibrahim as well, and following the footsteps of our you know ancestors. Uh, we actually like this embodiment of, of this for me it's 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 crucial because we do it with our souls we do it with our bodies we do it with our movement we do you know we use everything we as humans are given to uh reenact um uh, reenact uh, uh, those movements and also like retestify if you want you know our connection uh to, to Allah and our our um, reliance on Allah. Yeah, in a way, it's it seems like it's acknowledging that primordiality somehow. It's acknowledging something in us that already is there, and we're just remembering, witnessing, reliving it. Jarmana, I want to ask you if there's anything um, that I didn't ask you that you would wish to share or reflect on with other with the people who, inshallah, will listen to this podcast. Any other reflection you have from the Hajj? Maybe one thing, which I, I there are many things, obviously, and as I talk about these things, and thank you very much for asking me because this is also forcing to me to remind myself, you know, about these things. I think one thing that like also stu stuck with me in a way is this this like the the, the notion of time. Um, uh, I think this was the first time in my life when I was like almost 30 days away from my work, family, obligations, friends, everything that we have in this material, you know, in terms of like, you know, in, in our, let's say, everyday life, which includes lots of obviously also material things and stuff. And that's a different way of understanding time at least for me there was a different quality in time or for example spending a whole day on Arafat you know like in Dua like 
we don't do that. At least I, I, I don't come from, from, I suppose many people today in this, this day and age don't do that, like, you know, for a day. So, and you don't even like think this is possible. Not, not like, I don't think it's impossible, mm. but it doesn't come across your mind, you know, like you don't see people doing that. So I think Hajj in a way for me, maybe one biggest lesson was this like, uh, time, like, I started at that time thinking about importance of time. I, I, I mean, uh, it's it's a process, obviously, and I suppose I never, I will never stop thinking about time. But like, I think I'm now more conscious than I was at that time. So, in terms of like the importance of time that was given, that is given to us, and I think Hajj in a way triggered a little bit of that in me. Like, I started really understanding that like time is an important resource. Let's say. Thank you so much, Germana. What a beautiful note to leave us with. What seemed remarkable at the start of my conversation with Hadia, Germana, and Hamida about the physical reenactment of the movement of Hajar has only increased my awe at the fact that the Sa'i is a farth of the pilgrimage or a required obligation of fulfilling this pillar. At each stage in this podcast, like a pilgrim at the various rites of pilgrimage, we are being taken deeper into the layers of what embodied ritual and practice means. What does it mean that we must enter a sacred state before visiting the holy sanctuary? What does it mean that we must physically walk around the Kaaba and answer the call of Abraham? What does it mean that we reenact the seeking of Hajar? It matters that we do these rituals with our bodies for what it implies about our spirits and how the outward is connected and transformative to the inward, an aspect of our existence which is so beautifully encapsulated and symbolized in the Sahih, where Hajar's outward actions were a reflection of her inward tawakul. I want to thank our guests once again for their really illuminating ruminations upon the Sa'i. And many thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode of our podcast. It's your continued support of the Cambridge Muslim College that enables us to train the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Please consider making a donation to the college today to ensure we continue this valuable work. Next time, we journey into how millions of people live together and find shelter and shade in the Arabian desert.